Welcome and thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. In our current sermon series called Grit and Grace, we're studying women in the Bible. So far, we've looked mostly at women we know and have come to love and admire for who they are and what they've done. Today, we look at a woman who has no power, no prestige. We don't even know her name. And yet, here she is. And here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page with the sermon, No Small Thing. Great job, guys. Great job worshiping that song. Man, I just love it. It's so simple in some ways in its melody and its lyric, but it seems to catch, capture what the Christian life is all about. And it certainly captures uh, the, the woman that we're going to read about today in the scriptures. Before I read from the scriptures, oh, by the way, my name is Steve Page. And just in case you don't think some strangers just wandered up here, uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and um, it's my pleasure to bring to you the Word of God. But I want to give you a little context right before I read the passage, and it takes place in the last days before Jesus is crucified. It's during the Passover celebration, which was a huge holiday for the Jewish people. It was like their Independence Day that they celebrated for a week, so like they would start like on this Sunday, and they would do it for this whole week. And there'd be hundreds of thousands of people going in and out of the the Jerusalem city and also out of the temple to pray, to worship, to listen to sermons, to make their offerings to God. But what's interesting that Jesus in this week is particularly aggressive and particularly harsh. You remember, he turns over tables and he drives people out of the temple selling stuff. and, And he particularly is argumentative and abrasive with his words towards the religious elite telling pretty tough parables about punishment and their demise. And of course, um, after the events of our reading today, he will soon be beaten to a pulp and crucified on a cross. And by any way you look at it, this week is filled with hostility and turmoil. Yet, wedged in between all this harshness and hostility, there is a moment of delight in Jesus, which we're going to read about. So if you're able, please stand with me as I read the word of God. So Mark 12 and Luke 21 patched together here, and it goes like this. As Jesus taught, he said, beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, they say long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. And then Jesus then sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And then he called his disciples and he said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all all of those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Then after this, some of the disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the wall. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
So, of course, today we continue in our series on women in the Bible. We call it Grit and Grace. And today we come across this nameless woman who for 2,000 years in church history has been a stellar example of what it means to be a follower of God. And the whole story of Jesus and this widow is contained in just a few short sentences. And, and her offering at the temple is likely the smallest offering ever given to God that you'll see in scriptures. Yet, yet this action is gigantic in meaning and implication. As I alluded to a moment ago, it's positioned between two other stories <coughs> that pass comment on the issue of power and pretentiousness and grandeur. You know, first we see that Jesus excoriates the scribes, also known as teachers of the law, because they go around trying to look stately and important, wearing long, flowing robes. But the thing that gets Jesus to condemn these men, in the most severe terms, by the way, is that they exploit people. See, scribes and teachers of the law, they had patrons. They had benefactors who would pay them for sharing their, you know, quote-unquote brilliance, let's say. And it is known that some of the scribes would actually take financial advantage of the patrons even if they were widows, thus rendering these, these widows even more powerless and poor than they already were. And here's the thing. You know, to feed off those who could not fend for themselves was so repugnant to God that Jesus reserves his harshest words of condemnation, particularly for them, a condemnation he didn't even use for pagans and tax collectors. But after throwing out those severe condemnations among, about the showy scribes, you know, Jesus takes a little break. He's a little tired, perhaps, because he's been debating people all day. And he goes over to sit down finally. And he sits near where the folks are giving their monetary offerings there at the temple. So I want to read this quickly again, as we read before. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd put money, uh, putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Now, theologians and historians say that there are about 13 boxes there in the temple at that place where they would collect. 13 boxes um, that were, were marked. It was interesting. They were marked for particular purposes. Uh, most, you know, marked for the different needs of the temple at the time. For example, one, one of the boxes might be labeled oil for oil for the temple lamps. Another one could be labeled incense the, for the incense they would burn during worship. Or still another might be a box that you'd put money in for the purchasing of animals that they would use for sacrifice on a regular basis. And it got me kind of thinking, what if we did that here at First Pres? What if we put it like, you know, 13 boxes up here and they were all labeled, you know, one was marked electric bills and furniture or candles or lighting or Steve's salary. <laughs> and you'd come up, you know, and you're like, oh, lighting, sure, candles, sure, furniture, sure, Steve's furniture, sure, lighting, sure. I can imagine it. You're not kidding me. Anyway, Jesus is watching all this giving to God pretty closely. And he says there that he saw many rich people come, come and go, which probably indicates he sat there for quite some time. So amongst all the clamor of lots of people making really big gifts, you know, Jesus now sees this woman in line. Most likely she's a raggedly dressed woman, a woman who would stand in sharp contrast to flowing robed scribes and the well-adorned rich. 
And I say she was probably ragged because you see the word poor there that, that, that's in the scripture doesn't simply refer to someone who's a mere peasant. It's more akin to a destitute beggar. It refers to someone who comes out of abject poverty. And the fact that she's a widow makes it even worse because in the ancient world, women who did not have husbands and who didn't have sons were often left powerless and landless and penniless, which made their lives extremely difficult. So being a destitute widow is almost proverbial for saying this woman was the poorest of the poor. Now, because such people were so vulnerable in the ancient world, God put it in his word. They were supposed to be protected and cared for under Jewish law. The Old Testament is replete, and you should look it up one day. It is replete with directive after directive of how God's people were to care for widows because it was so vulnerable. And there are strong condemnations for those who wouldn't do it. And the fact, the fact that she only had a half a cent to her name was a sign that the religious system in Israel was severely broken. Which is probably, by the way, one of the reasons why Jesus was overturning tables and kicking people out of the temple. He was so upset. See, God's intentions for people like her have been severely corrupted, and it was no small thing. Again, Given the holiday context, this is especially egregious. Remember that this is the week where the Jews are celebrating being delivered from slavery, being delivered from a life that was punishing and harsh and grueling. Yet here we have this destitute widow who's now standing amidst this, as it says here, majestic and adorned temple. With all, the, with all this gold and silver being chucked out with the people in front of her Harlan line, just, just chucked out into these boxes, while she, while she still lives a very harsh and grueling life of her own. You see, folks, what I want you to get at, there's cruel irony in this moment everywhere. And I share this background because I don't want you to think that Jesus is sitting there and he's looking at all this and he says to himself, well, isn't that nice? This sweet lady came over, made an offering to the Father. This is no sentimental incident. This is not some quaint picture or story. This is serious stuff. It is a microcosm of everything that is wrong in the worship of God in those days. But yet it is also a, a picture of, of everything right about what it means to truly follow God. What I also like about this scene is the simple fact that Jesus even notices her. Such an insignificant individual on the face of the planet. And I can't help but wonder how many folks looked right by her that day can't help but wonder how many folks felt that she's, she's nearly invisible to them. And I say this, and I say this here because, because, you know, this woman, let's face it, this woman ended up a, pa a pauper probably for a lot of different reasons. But one reason she stayed a pauper was because she suffered from a bad case of indifference. As I said, if the religious leaders and the Jewish people of the day were following God's directives as laid out in the scriptures, the state of her existence would have been a very high priority and she would certainly be noticed and certainly she would have more than a half a penny. But they would have to notice her first. 
They would have to see her first because that's what noticing and seeing do. They make you responsible. I remember I was jogging one day. And, and, you know, when you go jogging, you go jogging as a Christian. You don't go jogging as like suddenly you check your faith at the door. And I'm jogging and there's this two, two people at the bus stop. And one was a guy around 40, the other guy looked around 70. And a 40-year-old guy was harassing and smacking and, and grabbing the, the older man by the beard, you know. And so what am I going to do? I see, I notice, I ignore. When you see and when you notice, it makes you responsible. And so I did what I had to do to break that up. I'll leave it to your imagination as to what happened, but it broke up. But my point is to see and to notice makes us responsible. And heck, if you don't see her, this lady, then you don't feel responsible for her. Keeping people invisible allows our lives not to be disrupted, doesn't it? Our spending of our money is not disrupted. Our use of time is not disrupted. Our plans and goals for life or for the day are not disrupted when we don't notice people. This apathy due to blindness is not only an ancient problem, we see it today. In fact, I want to share for you some, some words from a writer and researcher, Patrick Lencioni, as he's talking about the vital, the vital importance of being noticed, even as a mundane place is work. In talking about the three signs of a miserable job, Lencioni says this, the first sign of a miserable job is anonymity which is the feeling that employees get when they realize the manager has little interest in them as human beings and they know little about their lives, their aspirations, and their interests. How tragic. Look, if you don't know how to serve God in our world today, if you're trying to figure out how to serve the world at work in Jesus' name, can you consider the ministry of noticing? Can you consider the ministry of reducing anonymity at work, the ministry of intentionally seeking out many of people who may feel unknown, and may I say, not just only at work, but maybe here in our own community, people feeling invisible. And this is why you hear many times I say from this pulpit how crucial it is, how crucial the simple act of truly listening to someone has such a powerful impact on their soul. It's one of the most powerful ways people actually feel loved. Listen to Professor uh, uh, Dr. Augsburger, David Augsburger, as he put it this way. Being heard or being listened to, being noticed, is so close to being loved that for the average person they are almost indistinguishable. See, bottom line, no one can really experience real love outside the experience of being noticed, of being heard. So how can you make someone feel a little more known, a little more noticed, a little more heard this week, maybe even right after this service? How can you do that for God? And this leads me to my next point. As I mentioned before, given the context of what is going on all around them, and where they're standing. As I said before, cruel irony is everywhere. Yet what's interesting is that this is exactly the place, exactly the the one place all week where Jesus seems genuinely excited and delighted. He's so impacted by this woman's gift that he quickly summons his disciples to come over and see this. You know, you can almost picture Jesus like not just going, hey, he's going, come here, you got to see this. 
Now, now, pause for a moment about what his eagerness to get them over there implicitly expresses here. You know, he is saying, at the very least, he is conveying that nothing else that you guys are seeing or you guys are saying in this moment is more important than what this woman just did. That's what he's saying. I don't care what you're doing. Get over here. I want to show you something. So they come over, and apparently he points her out, and he tells what happens, and he says, truly I say to you. And by the way, when Jesus in the Gospels ever starts something with truly I say to you, each and every time he is saying, I really need you to get this. This is really important if you're going to follow me. So truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. It could be translated as more than all of them put together put in the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, meaning out of their excess, out of the stuff they wouldn't miss anyway. That's what that word is about. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Actually, that last phrase could be translated as, she put in everything she had, she put in her whole life. That's what those words mean there, literally, her whole life. In other words, she gave all of who she is, not just what she possessed. It wasn't the size of her offering that was important. It was the fullness of devotion by which she gave it. That's the crucial thing. And to look, to be honest, excuse me, I don't think Jesus is making the point to his disciples about money or about possessions. Because he already knows his disciples have left all their livelihood to follow him. In fact, in Mark 10, Peter says it himself, we have left everything to follow you. So, so Jesus is not making the point about money or possessions. He's making it about devotion. There was, there was more to their devotion that they were going to need if they're going to carry out his mission in that type of world. They needed a widow-sized devotion. They needed a devotion where they put their whole life on the line. Now, why do I say that? Maybe that sounds a little hyperbolic, but well, think about it this way. Ask yourself, why is her level of devotion so necessary in our walk with God? Seems extreme. Why is it necessary? Well, the answer to that question is really extensive, but I'm just going to give you two reasons. A couple of reasons why widow-sized devotion is crucial to the Christian life is because without such devotion, courage and risk-taking for God's kingdom simply won't happen. Without courage and risk-taking, the kingdom of God's purposes and values and goals will only go so far but no farther. In our families, in our workplaces, our communities, our relationships will be the lesser for it. See, God is serious. He is dead serious, and he is passionate about changing this world, about healing this world, about saving this world. Yet because there's so much corruption and hate and division and antagonism, sometimes if we're honest, it makes us feel like God's goals are impossible. But it is there, right there in those moments of feeling God's goals are impossible, that godly courage and godly risk need to really show up through you. Not like I hope it shows up through Pastor Steve. But it shows up through you. Amen? Amen. All right, that was a good one. I mean, look, after all, what do we think it really takes to love enemies? What does it really take to bless people who hate us? 
What does it really take to bring God's peace in this crazy world, in this divided and hostile atmosphere? Do we really think all we need is a nice, casual, safe effort to bring about God's ends? Do we really think that? And this is why I think the issue of courage and risk is behind why Jesus wanted the disciples to know what that woman, that courageous woman did. Think about it. After he described their situation to them, they, these men who would know very clearly the state of a destitute woman in first century Israel, they would have understood quite clearly that she took a huge risk to give that much. So I think they get that at least in part, Jesus' point is this. You need to be this courageous and this devoted if you're going to follow me. What do I say that? Well, look, in just a couple of days, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to be whipped and beaten to a pulp. He's going to be hung naked up on a tree. So think about that for a second. You want to kill someone's courage? You want to kill someone's risk-taking? Then, then watch the guy who says, all right, now you go out and do what I did. Watch that guy get brutalized. Watch that guy get crucified. That will suck the courage right out of you. Amen? Yeah, you better believe it. See, the bottom line in a world like ours, courage is crucial because fear Because of what we're given to do, fear is always going to happen as we try to grow in and live out the Christian life. We cannot get around fear. Pastor and writer John Ortberg says, the choice to follow Jesus is the choice for constant, the constant reoccurrence of fear. Fear will never go away. Why? Because each time I want to grow It will involve going into new territory, taking on new challenges. And each time I do that, I will experience fear again. Fear and growth go together. And I would add fear and impact go together. You know, when you make steps to impact the world for Jesus, often fear is right next to you. Brothers and sisters, fear is always going to be at our doors. It's going to be whispering to our souls. It's going to lurk in the shadows of every effort we make to grow and to serve God's kingdom. It is likely it will never leave us completely. But that's okay. Because courage is not fearlessness. Listen to one American writer when he, read this, he wrote this. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is simply more important than our fear. And it is that devotion to God, that widow-sized devotion to God and his mission that will be the something else more important which will help us to be courageous. Amen? Amen. You know, it's been said that fear not. Fear not has been the most often repeated directive in the Bible. 366 verses give that directive. Fear not. And it's said, and it's said to some of the greatest people in all of Scripture. But why is that phrase most often repeated than other ones like, you know, love others, forgive others? Those are really good ones. Why not repeat that a lot? Well, perhaps perhaps it's because fear is the greatest reason that we are tempted to avoid doing what God has called us to do. It is the greatest reason that we are tempted to avoid to change what God has called us to change, not only in us, but in our world. You see, fear not only causes us not to risk, fear causes us to be 
spectators instead of players in the kingdom of God. But here's the deal. I know you and I want to see a different world. We turn on that news, we say, man, I want to see something different than that. I know you want to see a different kind of Hawaii, a different kind of community, a different kind of workplace, a different kind of life. But it won't come if we Christians play it safe. Let me share a few things about my own journey in service to God. And understand my spirit here, okay? I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, okay? I just want to be really real with you guys. The first time I ever preached, I had no training. And you're going, yeah, I know. I could tell. (laughs) But seriously, the first time I ever preached, I had no training. The first time I counseled other people, I had no training. The first time I helped the poor and worked with the homeless, I had no training. The first time I had to officiate a funeral, I had no training. The first time I ever did a wedding, I had no training. That's a lot of lack of training. But that lack, yeah, but my point is this, that lack of training made me very nervous. It made me very anxious, and it made me very fearful more than a few times. But by God's grace, I don't know how it happened, but by God's grace, he gave me that devotion, that devoted passion to try and risk anyway. And I'm here to tell you that I have been fortunate enough to see God move in the most fearful times of my soul. And that doesn't mean it was easy. Didn't mean it didn't take a whole lot of effort and sacrifice, and it didn't mean that my journey has been void of failure, plenty of failure along the way. But my point is, folks, we cannot wait. The world cannot wait till we Christians really finally, you know, get it down before we take steps of courage into God's greater mission. Let's be real. It's going to take great courage. It's going to take great risk to love and to serve our enemies. It's going to take great courage to sacrifice even some personal comforts in order to feed the hungry, to nurse the diseased, and to help the poor. It's going to take great courage to share the gospel with your neighbor, your friend, your family, your co-workers, your roommates. It's going to take courage. Bottom line, following Jesus takes courage, and that's why devotion, a widow-sized devotion, is not just optional, it's crucial. Amen? All right. Now, let me make something super clear here about living a devoted life to Jesus. Because we're Americans, and I'm afraid how we're going to think about this. Devotion is not about doing something really big in life. Americans like really big. If it ain't big, go home. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, you go to a conference, and, and the guys' seminars who are packed are the pastors who have 5,000 people. The guy's got 50 people in his church. His wife is there. That's it. Nobody wants to listen to a guy who's only got 50 people in his church because we're Americans. We think big is better automatically, right? Well, maybe, maybe it's just about using the little you have to bless others. Be it the little time you have. Be it the little talents you have. Be it the little whatever you have. Use it to serve God, to honor him and bless others. Look, when I was a missionary in Thailand for a time, I lived in what was called the rice bowl, which meant, you know, as far as the eye could see, man, it was just nothing but rice all around you. I was living in a small town. And in those rice fields, in one of those rice fields lived one of our elders from our church. We had a real tiny church of poor folks, about 14, 15 people in that church. And that elder only had a sixth grade education. 
And he was a very poor man, often on Sundays, even though he's an elder, he didn't have any money to put into the offering plate. Yet with the little he had, he offered it to God. And God used it to bless others. When harvest season came, he would take his first sack, not his third, fourth, or tenth, his first sack of rice, and he would bring it to church as an offering to God. Now imagine you ushers handling that offering. Put that in the offering plate, whap, you know, this kind of thing. But he'd bring it to church. And as a result, the other 14 very poor people in that church, we would cook up some rice each week for lunch after church. And some of them, for some of those people, that was the largest meal they were ever going to have that day, the meal that they had at church. And that one bag fed all of us for a whole year of Sundays. And the following year, he'd come back and do it again. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think God was delighted by a single bag of rice? Like the way he was delighted about two small copper coins from a widow. Do you think he was delighted? Do you think he smiled? See, part of my point, in the great big world of things, a sack of rice ain't huge. But in the kingdom of God, it is no small Thing. Now, you may not have maybe this great big life-changing sermon for thousands like Peter had on the day of Pentecost. Maybe you don't have all this power to heal people like the way Paul did in the book of Acts. But what you do have, and I know you have this, you have a widow's half penny a something. And whatever it is, it ain't no small thing. Stop for a minute and imagine a church where people don't bring even the so-called small things they have. Imagine no one helping out in the parking lot during the busy times of Easter and Christmas, how crazy that would be. Imagine, imagine no one drives the van to pick up people who can no longer come to church on their own. Imagine. Imagine no one lending their creativity to vacation Bible school or a children's ministry. Imagine no one working the sound system, those poor nameless guys back there who work the sound system, or change the lights and fix the lights in this church. Imagine. Imagine no one being greeted or welcomed week after week. Nobody welcomes them. They feel invisible. Imagine what a church is like without the small thing of us. I see you and I welcome you. Imagine. What does Sunday become like? What does the state of the church become like if we don't have people bringing their small things? And that's just one hour a week that would be terrible. Now imagine no one is willing to risk starting a small group. No one is willing to give their time, maybe even just a little bit of time to listen to your pain, pray for you, support you, encourage you through a very difficult season in life. My point is, okay, so maybe you can't preach to hundreds of thousands, but can you create a conversation? Can you create a conversation with one person who may need it? Can you listen deeply to the journey of another person's life and listen to their pain? Can you come with one question to your small group that might open up deeper discussion? Can you come up with one example or metaphor that might make the study deeper or one word of encouragement to someone in the group? Can you do that? You know, I, I often see this on Thursday night with the men's group, with the band of brothers on Thursday nights. And some guys, they come and they share a lot. Some guys only share just a couple of things. But those one or two things they say sometimes takes us to a whole new level of understanding about what we're talking about. And, and better than that, it takes us now to a whole new level of openness and sharing with each other. And that is no small thing. Because when we go deeper and we become more often, now men's lives can change. Because someone was willing to bring their small thing. Now one last story. And then we're done. 
So a number of years ago, as I'm preaching at a conference, and the first day went really well. People loved it. It was awesome, right? Next day, nah, I didn't feel so well. In fact, I felt it went kind of bad. But afterward, while the next speaker got on the stage, a pastor friend of mine saw how I was feeling, and he knew instinctively I was measuring the situation all wrong, and he could see I was beating myself up a little bit. And then he came over, and he says, Steve, come here a second. He put his arm around, and he wanted to tell me something. He says, you know, I used to feel so pressured and nervous about my preaching when I was younger. You see, I don't have a lot of formal education like you do, and I felt so insecure, and I would lose sleep every Saturday night, and then Sunday after I preached, I'd lose sleep. But one day something changed when I realized something. He said, Steve, some days in my service to God, I hit a home run. But some days it's a foul tip. But whatever the outcome, I sleep easy at night because I know I gave my best to glorify God. And that, Steve, is the main thing. And Steve, let me tell you something. That's exactly what you did here this morning. You gave your best and you honored God, and you made him smile. Well, I felt pretty good. Let me tell you something, you know. Have you ever experienced the smile and the light of God, even for the small thing that you offer? So Leon is going to come up here and finish with a song here, and, and, and we're going to give you a moment of silence before he sings. What is God saying to you? Is there something he wants you to say, something he wants you to do, something he wants you to change? Is there some part of your life, your activities, your goals that you need to give fully over to Jesus? And I'm not talking just your money or abilities, but maybe there's some kind of unforgiveness or bitterness or anger or resentment. Is he speaking to you about stepping up to be a little more courageous and take a risk, even with that small thing, so that you can give glory to God and bless other people? And can you take joy in knowing that whether you hit a home run or a foul tip, that you can still give glory to God, and he is delighted, and he smiles on you? Just be with those thoughts. Close your eyes just for a moment. Wow. So, man, you know, all the songs we sang today, I brought this up to say, take this home. Meditate on the lyrics of everything you've heard and felt and experienced today because I really think God's going to speak to you. Because we've been all day, we're talking about, like, the reason this song ends, we ended it with this because this is the basis for being devoted to him because he was all in for us. God never asks us to do something he's not going to be willing to do himself. He had a widow-sized devotion to you and me. How's yours towards him? You know, if you don't know Jesus is your Savior today, we want to pray with you. There are going to be prayer warriors to my right and to my left. Come up if you need prayer for healing, for, for whatever needs you may have in your life. Come forward. If you want a special blessing to walk a devoted life for Jesus with your life, if you need a blessing to be courageous and take risks, for, come forward and get some prayer. We want you to have that this morning there, okay? But whatever you do, whatever you do, be bold this week. Be devoted this week. Step out for Jesus and see what he does through you. Let's all stand for the blessing. And now may the God who gave his whole life to us may fill you with a widow-sized devotion 
So that in all the things, the small things, the big things, in everything you do, you give glory and honor to God. And may you be used as his hands, his arms, his ears, his words to a world, to people who feel so invisible. May you, by your love, make them visible again. Show them the love of Jesus. To him be all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It wasn't about the amount. It was never about the amount. It was all about her obedience, her courage, her example for us all. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Kiona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930 and 1111. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. If you need more, call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.